All right, kids, come on up. Come on over, find somewhere to sit. All right, come on over. Good to see everyone this morning. All right, keep coming. Good. All right, so uh, we've been preaching through the Bible, and in, who remembers what book of the Bible are we preaching in right now? Who remembers? Go ahead. You can say it out loud. Acts. Acts. Yeah, the book of Acts. So we've been making our way through the book of Acts, right? And recently, we learned of the gospel coming to the city of Antioch, right? And so today, we're going to read that the church at Antioch will send out two men. They're going to send out Saul, also known as Paul, and Barnabas. And they're going to send them out to other cities to preach the gospel. And so they'll be, we'll hear about them traveling around preaching the gospel in some different cities. Now, why would the church send out people to preach the gospel? Why do you think they might do that? Yeah, to have people know more about Jesus, right? Because God had salvation for all people now, right? It started with the Jewish people, and now it's been open to the Gentiles. Remember that? So now the gospel of salvation is available to all people through Jesus Christ, right? So what do you think, if you were to predict, if you were to guess, what do you think happened as they went to these different cities and preached the gospel? What do you think? What, say it again. Yep, they might have been thrown out, stoned. They were persecuted. We'll talk about that. What else do you think happened as they preached the gospel to these people? Do you think, what do you think? Okay, there was persecution, but what else? What do you think? How do you think the people responded? So some rejected. They were imprisoned. Yeah, lots of persecution. But you know what else happened? Many people believed the gospel and they were saved. So you have two things happening. One, there's many people who believe the gospel as they hear it preached and they're saved. And you have other people who don't like it and they're rejecting it. And then they persecute those who do come to faith in Christ. So we've seen both of these things happen throughout the book of Acts, right? The gospel goes forward, it's preached, and many people receive it in faith and believe. And many people reject it and persecute those who do come to faith in Christ. All right? Now, as they went and preached the gospel and people started to believe, they would establish churches. Why do you think it's important to have a church? What do you think? Yeah, so they had a place to come and worship God. And they had a community of believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ, to come and worship together uh, and, and worship God together. And so the church is really important. God uses the church to build his kingdom, and it's important for individuals to be part of a church, to be together in fellowship with God's people. So the church has great value, and we read that they appointed elders in the church, people who could provide some good leadership to the church. So again, that was taking place, and there was persecution, but you know what happened is people were persecuted. God used that to spread the gospel. He would have persecution, and then they would send people out away, and they would take the gospel to other cities and other people, so more and more people 
could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so they could believe and be saved too. So do you think God was in control of little bits of that? Every once in a while, God was in control? No, God is in control all the time. That's right. God is always in control, and so we can trust him in all things. He's always in control. When the gospel is preached, he's in control, and even when there's hard times and persecution, God is still in control, and he's carrying out his plan and building his kingdom. So Pastor Jeremy's going to come and preach more, so you guys can go back and have a seat and keep listening as he comes and preaches. We are in Acts chapters uh, 13 and 14. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, they built the platform, and Ezra, kind of the preacher, got up, and he was reading large sections of Scripture from morning until noon, long time. And then he would intersperse as he was reading the meaning, what it meant, what it meant for them. And so I'm going to take a page out of Ezra's book this morning. We have two full chapters. Chapter 13 has 52 verses. Chapter 14 has 28. And so I'm going to test your patience here this morning. And I, I'm planning, it's really excellent. And it was, I, I didn't find one thing I wanted to draw out. I want to do it all. So we're going to read through it. And I'm going to stop along the way and explain what's going on and bring some application. So if you're a younger person and attentiveness might be a problem, open up a Bible uh, to Acts chapter 13. Parents, maybe help them. And then at the end, after we get through it, if you just read through it aloud, it takes about nine and a half minutes <clears throat> or so, depending on your speed. And so I, the main body of the message will be just reading through it, giving you a few... Uh, helps. And then at the end, I want to just take one main thing and apply it to us. Uh, let me set the stage. If you remember, Acts chapters 11 through, or 1 through 11 are the establishment of the church, and they mainly take place in Jerusalem. So the church is established among the Jews. The church in Jerusalem is led by people like Peter, Peter's kind of the main focus in those, his activities by the power of the Holy Spirit in the first 11 chapters. And then we saw in chapter 8, and again in chapter 12, persecution breakout. And in chapter 8, it says that they were scattered. And again in chapter 12, they're scattered. And from here on out, chapter 13 all the way to the end, chapter 28, it focuses mainly on Paul and him taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And so chapter 13 is the beginning of this. Typically we see Paul took three missionary journeys. Chapters 13 and 14 are his first missionary journey. And so we're, we're shifting here to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The Jews have now by this point begun to largely reject the gospel. Although Paul will, whenever he goes to the city, start at the Jewish synagogue and preach the gospel. And then when they don't find a listening ear there and they find persecution, they'll go to the Gentiles. We'll see that in our section. But just so you see the lay of the land. Remember, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So the first 11 chapters are mainly in the area of Judea. Little leaks here and there. But now they're going to be mainly to the ends of the earth. So this is a, the, the change. This is the beginning of book two, if you will, in Acts. 
just to keep your, where we're at. Okay, let me uh, pray, and we'll start with uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Father, our souls are often tempted and tried here in this world. We have no life in ourselves, and so we need life according to your word. Teach it to us, please. Make us understand it. Help us to meditate in these verses on your wondrous works. Father, our souls are often melting because of sorrow. Strengthen us, please, according to your word. Put false ways far from us. Graciously teach us your law. God, we have chosen the way of your faithfulness. We cling to your testimonies. Please do not put us to shame, but enlarge our hearts now. Give us an attentiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 13, 1. Now there were in the church. I'm going to stop already. In the church. Pastor Jeff said that they went out preaching the gospel. And they did go to make converts. They did go to see individuals turn from darkness to light. Turn from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of the beloved son. And yet the purpose was the church. I think sometimes in our individualistic, our hyper-individualistic culture, we forget that the main point of the gospel is the church. It's bringing individuals into God's kingdom and establishing them in a visible local church. And there are going to be particular things we'll see in our text about the gathering of the church. So here, if you remember, this is Antioch. This is where Barnabas went This is where the church is established. This is where he went and got Paul to come and help in the work. This is where they spend a lot of time building him up. And now this church is gathering regularly to worship. That's what we see right away. And and so as we struggle with our individualistic bent, it's just about me and Jesus. It doesn't matter what anybody else tells me. Everything else comes before the church. That is not the gospel way. It's always about the church. It's about the body of Christ. Terry, our elder, prayed for singles. And as he was praying, I'm, and my wife and children, I, I can be really critical and I pick nits, if you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm always thinking. And one of the temptations for singles is that Jesus is my husband. I don't think we ever say Jesus is my wife. I don't think the guys do that. But, you, you apply something very individually, very personally, that is not at all ever meant. Jesus is not a polygamist. He doesn't have millions of wives. He has a bride, the church. And so uh, now they were in the church. They came to Christ and they gathered together. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and a teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, multicultural already, he's African, probably black, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, so he is one of the Herods, one of the murderers, and one of his court officials is in the church, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, we read here that the Holy Spirit said, 
don't get the impression here that as they were worshiping, this voice from the heavens thundered in the church. No, this was probably one of the prophets and teachers mentioned in verse 1 who spoke something that they felt was from the Lord. And the church, after much fasting and praying, agreed and sent these men out, Barnabas and Saul, and then we'll see that John Mark goes with them. Another way to say it is, the church is highly organized. The the church is functioning as a worshiping body, and they, led by their preachers, send out workers from, from them. So the church, the congregation, has great responsibility and authority here. You notice this, right? You you see that they have leaders, but that the entire church is involved in the sending out of workers. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Notice the parallel here. In verse 3, it says they sent them out. And in verse 4, it's the Holy Spirit. And that's something. There is like this almost unclear distinction between the church sending them out and the Holy Spirit sending them out. And that's something. That the work of the church is here talked about as the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the importance that God places on his church, on what we do. We aren't God, and yet here we are, Christ's body on earth, as if we were. So they sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, when they arrived at Salamis, well, let me say something about Cyprus. If you remember, Barnabas was from Cyprus. This is Barnabas' hometown. I'll put a map up in a moment. But uh, this is straight west of Antioch, and they go to a place that is known. They go to Barnabas' hometown. There's two major cities, and they go to those two cities. Verse 5, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Remember, this is Barnabas' nephew, John Mark, Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, so those are the two cities, Salamis and Paphos, <clears throat> they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, that's also Bar-Jesus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, remember what I said last week, don't make anything theological out of that. Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. And now that they're going to be in mainly Greek-speaking areas, all the rest of the book, he's going to mainly be referred to by his Greek name. So there's no theological importance there. It's just Hebrew and Greek names. So also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, look intently at him. You ever had somebody look intently at you? It's very disconcerting. And he said, you son of the devil, (laughs) you enemy of all unrighteousness, or all, yeah, of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, Mist and darkness fell upon him, 
and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Don't be an enemy of the gospel. Don't oppose the simple way that God has made for our salvation. Parents, be very careful not to put obstacles in front of your children, not to make more difficult this simple reality that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. Take great care. Notice, too, that Paul is a shepherd, and he doesn't speak kindly to this man, does he? He doesn't say, hey, Elimus, you might want to be careful, you know, kind of, sort of, you know, about how you're talking about the gospel, you know. You know what I mean? So, you know, this isn't a good thing there. Hey, hey, just, you know, I don't want to be offensive, but just kind of tone it down a little bit, buddy. Okay, pal? No, you son of the devil! <laughs> so, shepherds is what we do, right? There are some people that need to be talked to very directly. Fathers, husbands, Take care. There are some young men who come after your daughters that need to be talked to like this. Right? There's some TV shows that need to be shut off. It doesn't matter what your kids say. You yourself. That's what shepherds do. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Are you astonished at God's word? That's something. This man in high position, this man who is a Roman government official, wealthy, all power, seeing the might, has the might and the power of the Roman Empire behind him, is astonished at God's word. Does God's word astonish you? Delight you? Draw you in? It is a moral deficiency to be bored at the word of God. To nap during the sermon. Unless you worked all night last night. All right. It doesn't even matter if you were in at a swimming meet yesterday and are tired. Because the word of God is astonishing. Why? Because it's the word of God. There is one God and he has given us a word. Is that not astonishing to you? If not, why not? What's wrong with you if it doesn't? Ever ask yourself that? Does God's word grab you? All right, let me show you the map. Because I know you're wondering where this all is. So you see in the bottom right, Syria. That's just north of Judea. So they're just straight north here of Jerusalem. Antioch, you see that there? That's Antioch of Syria. That's where the home base is. The first thing they do is go west and a bit south to Cyprus. That's where we uh, are now. And then they're going to head next, straight north and a little west, to Pamphylia in the region of Pisidia. And, and they go there. Now you see Iconium and Derby just under Lysonia. See that? That's Paul's home region. There's another town just east of there, Tarsus. That's where Paul grew up. So you think about it, they're going to Barnabas' homeland. And after that, they go to Paul's homeland. That's where this first missionary journey comes. 
and then they'll retrace their steps back after planting churches in these areas. They'll retrace their steps back and kind of strengthen the church and appoint elders and make sure the churches are ready to be independent and self-sustaining. This journey was about two years, they think. So we're in the mid-40s. So this is not too long after Christ himself was on earth and ascended. And so this is where we're going to go. So verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now again, John Mark here abandons the mission. We don't know why. I think it likely has to do something with running into those Jewish Christians who demand that in order to be Christian, you have to be circumcised. We'll see this a little bit later in chapter 15. We see it in the book of of Galatians where Paul has to rebuke Peter for giving in to these false teaching. And so anyways, whatever happened, Mark abandoned the mission. Mark left. And we'll see later on, if you remember, Paul and Barnabas get in a heated fight over this because Barnabas wants to restore Mark and bring him back along and and Paul refuses because of his abandoning. That that is what happens here. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Poseidon. So that's not the same Antioch that they began at. There's two cities named Antioch. One's in Syria and one's in Asia Minor and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue, right? So Jew first and then the Greek, Romans 1.16. And sat down after... So in Jewish worship, there would be Bible readings. So they would read a section out of the law, out of the first five books of the of the Old Testament, and then they read a section out of the prophets, and then sometimes they would let somebody kind of give a sermon. And so they asked Barnabas and Paul that day, hey, would you give us something? The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, that is to Barnabas and Paul, saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement to the people, say it. So Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, he said, men of Israel. So he preaches a sermon. Remember back in Acts chapter 2. Peter, the first thing he does is preaches a sermon and the church is established. We're going to see the same thing here. And Paul's sermon here is very similar to Peter's sermon. He gives a bit of Jewish history. He shows the connection of Christ as all of the promises of God to the Old Testament people coming true. He connects Paul to da- or Jesus to David, but says David's still rotting in his grave. Jesus has been raised to eternal life. And you too can have forgiveness of sins if you'll believe in Jesus. That's what he's about to say. So men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of the people Israel chose our fathers, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them. This is going to be consistent. God continues to be very gracious to the Jews, but they don't deserve it. God is going to do this wonder for the Jews, but they don't deserve it. God is going to give them a godly leader. We'll see in a moment, David, a man after God's own heart, but they don't deserve it. That's grace, right? That's what we get. Do we deserve Christ or any of these blessings? No. He put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Look at there. There's grace. God gave them. They didn't deserve it. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. They don't deserve it. 
Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed them, he raised up David to be the king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. So there's another gift. They don't deserve it. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So here's the main thing, right? Christ. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent a message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets who were read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And, they, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. So here's the gospel. This is your salvation. God sent his son. He was condemned, though he had done nothing wrong. He was sinless. He was executed, Jews and Gentiles conspiring together. He died, he was laid in a tomb, and he was raised from the dead. This is the good news that alone saves you. This is your only hope in life or in death. This is the only way that you have access to the Father. This is the only way that you do not suffer the wrath of God apart from his glory for all eternity in hell. This is it. This is the only saving grace of God, this news. So if you believe this, you have eternal life. This is your life, then you have life. If you don't, then you don't. This is the dividing line of all humanity. This is very uh, important. He's preaching this to God's people. He's preaching this to the Jews. And he's saying... To them, though you're sons of Abraham, you may not be. Though you have all of these blessings of God, you may not know God's blessings eternally. It's all about faith in Jesus Christ and that's it. Doesn't matter who your daddy is. Doesn't matter how good or bad you are. It matters whether or not you have faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who had come with him in Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses of the people, and we bring you the good news. Isn't that wonderful? That what God promised to his fathers, this he has fulfilled. God is faithful. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also is written the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let me tell you something. There is one thing driving us above all other things. It's our desire for atonement. We all know our guilt. We all know our shame. And there is one motivation deep in the core of your being that outstrips all others. It's the need to make good on it. The need to be given for it. The need to be redeemed of it. The need to be washed of it. This is why we do what we do. This is why you dress the way you dress, think the way you think, talk the way you think. This is the core motivation of every human being. Ultimately, because you want to be accepted by God. To find atonement. And there's only one way. There's only one way for atonement. Only one way for forgiveness. Only one way for freedom from that which enslaves us. Through this man. Through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? There's no other way. Your diet will not lead to atonement. Being the perfect mom will not lead to atonement. Raising perfect children does not atone for your sin or the sins committed against you. Having an unbelieving husband and having to act like it's all right will not atone. Only faith in Christ is atoning. That's it. Doing a whole bunch of good stuff constantly and always staying busy and always having to be in the know and always having to be approved by people does not atone. Only Christ. Now, Paul's going to bring the hammer. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one of tells it to you. So they're, he's accusing them. They won't believe this. But look at how they respond. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke of them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, they almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Make that your prayer for Rhinelander. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Why did they kill Jesus? See this? The disciples are following their master. They're in danger because their crowds are getting too big. They're taking too much notice. And they began to contradict what Paul, what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Oh, God, give us more boldness. Saying, it was necessary the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So at the end of the day, it's up to you, isn't it? Kids, will you thrust the word of this gospel aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life? I hope not. 
you're hearing this gospel. Hopefully you hear it in your home constantly. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles. They may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He's quoting there from Isaiah 49. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Like a little revival breaks out. Listen to this, though. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There is the doctrine of election. That's a neat summary of the biblical teaching of the doctrine of election. Who's doing the appointing here? God, when did he do the appointing? In eternity past, according to good, his good will and pleasure. And who believes by all who are appointed? This is part of what we mean by God's grace. Sometimes we only think of God's grace in present tense terms. We only conceive of God's grace as something that he's giving us now. Of something that came to us in our lives at a point in time, kind of in our present lives when we believed. Sometimes we even think that we continue to need God's grace. But we often neglect that God's grace is as ancient as God himself. God's grace is as eternal as God himself to us. If you believe, it's because he appointed it to you. And I know that makes some of you very uncomfortable, and you dislike it. I don't know why you would dislike this grace of God. I don't know why you would not enjoy and thank God for this incredible gift of him choosing you in grace, in love, so that you might believe in Jesus. What Paul is doing here, what Luke is doing, is showing that it, It's all God's grace. So God gets all the glory. I know what some of you will say. Well, then that makes us robots. But then that means man doesn't have a choice. I just want to say, we are so little-minded. Our brains are so teeny. Never anywhere does God's word talk about election as if making us robots, as if it violates our choice. Isn't everywhere in this text that they must choose? So isn't it true that God chooses and you must choose? Isn't it true that God is absolutely sovereign and everything happens according to his plan, including who believes, and that you must believe? Both are true. God is sovereign. God does a point of view to praise him. And if you thrust God's word aside, you yourself is choosing to not have eternal life. But if you will humble yourself and come to him, then you will have eternal life. This doctrine is very humbling to our pride. It just strikes against the core of our Americanism. Our love of, I get to do what I do. It's me, myself, and I, I choose. This is why wives often just hate the biblical teaching on headship in the Bible. 
Oh, it violates everything we hold dear about being American. And this is why men at work hate to be asked to do something by their boss. And they nod, smile, and then when they get behind, they just grumble and complain. Yet here's God appointing to eternal life those who only deserve eternal death. And we gnash our teeth at it rather than falling down and praising him for this gift of grace. None are worthy. None deserves it. We're Israel. We continually do things that prove our unworth, and yet God in grace does this. Verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited devout women of high standing, the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. So if you look at the map again, they're just continuing on north before they'll turn west. And the disciples will feel the joy in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that something? And they they, uh, suffer persecution. They're filled with joy and they continue going. So now they've turned east. We're in Iconium. And we'll be going between Iconium and Derby here. Now at Iconium, they entered together again into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained a long time. Don't you love the stubbornness of these apostles, the faith? (laughs) Speaking boldly for the board who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Don't forget, Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. The gospel divides. The gospel often generates conflict. When an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them, to stone them, they learned of it and fled. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. You got to know when to walk away and know when to run. It does take wisdom. Do we continue to stay and persevere or is it time to go? One might be right when the other isn't in different circumstances. This is why we need wisdom. They fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding city, and there they continued to preach the gospel. That's the most important point. They continued to herald the good news of salvation. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet crippled from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith that made well, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. (laughs) Isn't that nuts? I I know we've read this before, and we're kind of used to this. There's a guy who has never walked. He's obviously disabled. He he can see that his, his feet are crippled. His legs can't bear his weight. And the first thing Paul said to him is, get up, buddy. <laughs> and he sprang up and began walking. Isn't that amazing? Now, as in all things, this is showing the power of God. But how many of us are crippled of soul? And God made us live and we walk. But do we spring up? Do we have joy in the Lord for this salvation? 
When the crowd saw Paul done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands of the gates and wanted to sacrifice to the crowds. How tempting that would be, wouldn't it? Are you, can I, are you honest with yourself that this is what you would like from your wife? She'd think you're Zeus. <laughs> and that if she was ever disillusioned enough to think you godlike, you would not do what Paul and Barnabas do. Say, don't do that. You'd kind of let it go on. This is what pastors want. We want you to think, not that we're Jesus, but we're really close. This is pride, isn't it? This is the most danger that Paul and Barnabas has faced on the whole trip. It isn't the crowds about to stone them. It isn't the division of their own people, their own flesh and blood turning against them. It isn't wondering where they're going to get their next meal as they're on this missionary journey. It's that people think them very, very important. This is always the greatest danger to your soul, your pride. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, verse 14, they tore their garments. They rushed on the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you bright news. We're not the good news. We're nothing. The news is good. The news is about Christ. That you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from sacrificing to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. What a turn, huh? People are very fickle. Dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, stoning is taking big rocks and throwing them, hurling at somebody until they're dead. This is not a good broken bones, of course, blood, crushing. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe, and when they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they're going back through the places where they already planted the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples. This is what pastors and elders are to do, deacons assisting them. Our job is to strengthen your souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Why? Because you're tempted not to continue in the faith. You're tempted to make things more important than Christ. And saying that through many tribulations we might enter the kingdom of God. Now, husbands, when you get your wife's flowers tomorrow and get a card, I want you to write that in that to them. Honey, through many tribulations that will enter God's kingdom. It's true, isn't it? This world is hell. But heaven's coming if you have Christ, honey. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with the prayer of fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. 
Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, back to where they started. Where they had been commended the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. All right, one more thing in closing. Big picture. None of you are going to do what Paul and Barnabas did. That's not the point. Maybe one of you, maybe statistically, will be a missionary to places that have never heard of Jesus and you'll try to plant churches among the pagans like they're doing. Maybe one of you. Maybe. None of you will ever be in church and have the pastor, the teacher, stand up and say, God is calling you to go preach the word in Iran. And the church will pray and fast and gather around you, put your hands on you and send you out. That, that's not going to happen, I don't think, to any of you. But is the calling of God on your life, wherever you are, any less so than Paul and Barnabas's? Is the call of Jesus Christ to take up your cross and follow him only for Paul and Barnabas? Or is it in everything you do, according to your gifts, all the time? What we see in Paul and Barnabas's life, this complete abandon of obedience to Jesus Christ, enduring much suffering for the sake of his glory, it's no different than what you're called to as a mom. It's the same. The same allegiance. The same, do it again the next day for the glory of Christ. The same denial of your own glory for Christ. The same submission to God's word with all that you are. The same gathering of the church to worship him. We are no different than them. The call of God is the same. The commitment to the eternally inspired true word of God is the same. The great adventure that they're on is the same. And let me apply it one place. I was talking to somebody this week and talking about being male and female. There's no greater pressure in our culture than against the biblical teaching that men and men and women are women. And not just for a man to dress like a woman or a woman a man, but just to remove all distinctions between the sexes. You all agree there, right? I don't know how you couldn't. And so the take up your cross and follow me is always first as men being manly and women being womanly. Now, we can't apply that woodenly. There are different kinds of men and there are different kinds of women with different aptitudes and different personalities and so on. There isn't like this ideal man that you have to become like. I don't know who that would be in our day. It used to be John Wayne, which was much more helpful than like, what's that guy who does those Buick commercials? Ugh. 
what's his name? Matthew McConaughey. Don't be Matthew McConaughey. He is so pretty. Right? And I don't know who the woman is, but it's not somebody who wears tight-fitting shirts. Can we say that much? That the first place you're going to have to take up your cross and follow to be as a man is to just be man. First place to take up your cross and follow Christ as a woman is just to be a woman and to love it and to live out your sex, to be obedient to the sex God has given you. What if we just start there? Wouldn't that be radical in our day? Wouldn't that bring all kinds of condemnation of people in your own household down upon you? If you as a dad said, honey, you can't wear that out of the house. And your wife says, but that's what everybody else is wearing. And you say, no, my daughter is not going out like that. And just watch as you catch it. Amen. So let's start there. And you can apply that anywhere, right? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to love your word. Help us to be willing to suffer the slights of others, the discomfort of others for our allegiance to you and your word in all of the little things in our lives. Thank you for the preaching of the gospel. Thank you for the work of your son in bringing us to life. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. Help us now to work in it, walk in it. Help us now to apply it, to live it with ongoing growth and repentance to your glory. God, give us encouragement that you will not fail your people, that your word will never fail, that your word is true and eternal. And give us faith to love your word, to love it in its detail, to love it in all of our life to your glory. Help us be disciples like these disciples, though we will never be called like they are, we'll never do what they do, and yet our calling is no less than theirs. Our calling to submission to you and your word, to your son, is no less than theirs. And its importance to those in our lives is no less important than to who they impact. And so God, give us faith for this, please, that you might be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Since it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, you'll need each other. And so who can you help? Who can you encourage who can you be constant in prayer for? Who can you invite over? How can you help somebody's faith to continue in the faith as they encounter many tribulations? And how can you do that this week? Not just plan to do it sometime for someone, but for a person that needs it this week. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.